This morning, in our <clears throat> time in the Word, we'll be looking at the book Philemon. I was talking with a brother this morning, and you know, it's a book that we use quite a bit in reference to other scripture. But we, because it's so small, often when we turn a page, it's stuck to the other one, and we just keep going. But it's such a wonderful reminder to us. It's a short letter that was written by Paul. It's actually the last of the prison epistles. And it's very, very precious to us. In way of some background for Philemon, he's a man who lived in Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. His wife, Aphia, and his son, Archippus, where they had a house church. And that was the custom back then. They, you know, there wasn't a large gathering like this in most places. Synagogue, sure, but the actual early church was made up of a lot of home churches, house churches. And we believe the church, not necessarily just the one at Philemon's home, but the church at large there was started by men Paul had ministered to throughout his journey. Not just Paul, but the men that he had poured into. And they pour into others, and so on and so forth, making disciples. But it was done outside of Colossae, because there's no indication in the scriptures that Paul actually ever visited Colossae. There's no biblical record of it. He wrote the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians, we're familiar with that book, and that was to reiterate Jesus Christ as Savior and to encourage with his gospel. But there's no record of him actually going there. So Philemon met Paul likely during Paul's third missionary journey to Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was a kind of a hub. A lot of people went there, coming and going. They would stay there. And so you would meet a lot of people on your journey going through that place. And this letter was written somewhere around AD 53 to AD 61 while Paul was in prison in Rome. Remember, he was waiting to appeal his charges as Acts 28 describes. This letter is mostly about this request for restitution, to restore. But we're going to see not just restore, more than that. You see, we see Paul interceding for one Simus, who is a man he considered his spiritual son. And he's doing this to another man, Philemon, who Paul, as we said, was instrumental in sharing the word of God with him and discipling him. Philemon was likely a wealthy slave owner. He... Um, and, and one Simus was his slave. And he, but he owed some money to Philemon. But then he split. So essentially, he was stealing him and then abandoning him. Not something that, when we see, makes us happy. It doesn't give us the warms and fuzzies. 
But the letter doesn't go into the details as to everything, why he left. We don't know the circumstances that was it the money and he was afraid and then he left. We don't know. But I like that it doesn't say because it's worth noting that the details don't matter. The reasons don't matter. What matters is that God is big enough to overcome those things. His word matters. The Holy Spirit working in our lives, those things matter. The reasons don't. And through this letter that Paul writes to Philemon, we see a little bit of what God does in our lives today. He did it then, then he does it now. And if you think about it, this letter of intercession isn't uncommon, right? We do this for each other all the time. We pray for one another. We come alongside, lay hands on, pray for situations, over situations, with, we intercede for one another. That's what we do as brothers and sisters. And so this letter, because Paul couldn't be there with Philemon, he's writing this, interceding. The letter was likely delivered alongside the Colossians letter by the same person. If you read in Colossians 4, 7 through 9, it says that one Simus traveled with Tychicus, while under his protection, which I thought was interesting, his protection, and brought some information with them. We believe that some of this information that they brought were these two letters, along with some other things. Some history that you read on this may say different. I don't know for certain, but I tend to believe that this is true given the timelines and everything else. Now you may be asking, why in the world, for such a small book, are we going into so much background for this letter? Well, it's not really this letter necessarily, it's, it's Paul. Paul who's writing this letter. Think about where Paul was and everything that he had gone through leading up to where he was writing this letter. What he was waiting for and ultimately where his fate would end. We know a little bit about what Paul encountered, some of the things that he suffered, and I say some because it's really hard to articulate the sufferings that we go through from a day-to-day -day perspective, right? We can say physically, yeah, this, this hurt, this, that, but the emotional piece, it's really hard to explain what's going on with us emotionally, spiritually, especially in a letter. It's hard to say it in words. It's nearly impossible to say it in a letter. But 2 Corinthians 5, 22 through 28, tells us a little bit of these sufferings. It says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils 
of the Gentiles. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. He had such a burden for the church. Here he is sitting in prison and given the time frame close to when he was going to lose his life, give his life freely for the, for, for, for the Lord, but still in prison. And he's taking time to write this letter. It's such an example that we don't, we see in Scripture, but we don't really see lived out often. You know, we wake up sometimes in the morning with a wrong attitude. You know, we say, I can't find my pants. I can't find my shirt. That's it. I'm not going to church, right? Because it's, it's silly things that we, that put us out. But Paul, who went through so much, still took the time to write this letter, to intercede for a brother. You know, there was no phones back then. There was no email, text. We know that they had a really good form of communication. We don't know what it was, but they got the word out there quickly. But not as fast as we do today. But think about this one letter, how he hit two different areas. On one hand, he was interceding for his brother, one Simus, his spiritual son. He loved this man. And he was writing a letter to the individual trying to right a wrong. Trying to do what one Simus couldn't do for himself. But on the other hand, he's writing to Philemon, who likely had a hard heart because of the situation that one Simus put him in. Saying, hey, don't have a hard heart. And as we'll read, accept him. Accept him back. Restore him. But again, not just as a servant. Such a great example. And it's a letter that serves as a reminder forever. We know that the Word of God lives forever. Lives on forever. It's true today as it was then. And if there's a single verse in this message today that kind of culminates everything, it's verse 16, and it says, No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Think about that verse. No longer a slave, a beloved brother. How God's restorative power removed the man that once was and breathed life into a new creation. And as we talk about these things this morning, the first three words, no longer a slave. Now in the context, obviously, Paul is referring to one Simus' title. He was a servant of Philemon. But we know with the word of God, it casts many arrows. So no longer a slave. No longer a slave to sin. The old man. Our previous gods, lowercase g. And the list goes on. And for many of us, that was a long list. So I titled our time in God's Word today, A Plea for Grace. Oops, 
What did I do? Oh, there it is. And think about, you know, this word grace. Something that we're probably very familiar with doing. I know I asked for God's grace this morning a handful of times already. But he poured out his perfect gift for us, his grace, when he took our sins. So just think about how the work of Christ and in this letter, how they parallel. Before we dive in and read the Word of God, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for this day. Lord, we definitely counted a blessing to be able to be in this place, locked arms, Lord, to sing your praise, to pray, to hear your word. Lord, these are, these are your words. This is the word of God. Let us remember, Lord, that this is not just some book written by an author with a good vocabulary. Lord, these are your words that you would have us hear, that you would have us live out, be an example of. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in us, that we would not take this lightly, take this for granted, Lord, and that we would see the importance of your word in our lives every single day. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this concept of grace it's as simple as it is difficult. I think Pastor Tim mentioned at one time he wanted to do a teaching just on grace. I can't wait because, wow, there's a lot. There's many, many books out there. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, who went home to be with the Lord a few years back, um, wrote, I'm trying to think of the name, but it's a book on grace. We did it for one of our men's studies. And as much information as in there, there's, you can write volumes more. Grace is such a beautiful concept. Matthew Henry said, Grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. It's a free gift to us, but it's one that came with a cost. It came with a price. We didn't have to pay the price. But the one that did shouldn't have had to. And I love just thinking about that, not in a selfish sense, but he created us. He created man in his image, and he did so knowing that at one point he would have to somehow separate himself from himself and come down and die for the sins that we're committing. And yet, he still did it. He still said in, during creation that when he saw man, it was very good. Before that, it was good. With man, it was very good. His grace, even then, was being poured out. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have... For by grace you gave... For by grace you have that should be have, been saved through faith. I can't write. And then John Piper <clears throat> said, 
Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. It's power. I love that. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power is made perfect in our weakness. That's God's grace. So let's think about this concept of grace, and we're going to read the book of Philemon together. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We love to put one in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can keep that as a gift from us to you. Let's read together. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, mentioning, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, in age, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son, one Simus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. I am sending him back. You, therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing you, writing with my own hand. I'll repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Open our eyes, our hearts, to what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to look at two things this morning. This really could be three, but in interest of time and kind of how we're covering things, we're going to do two. It's a grace that saves and sustains is the first, and then a grace that restores. First, we're going to be looking at a grace that saves and sustains. We read the first verses, and in Paul's greeting, he describes his relationship, this deep relationship that he has. No doubt that one that grew organically through the interactions of one person with the other. But there are circumstances, and in the basis of their relationship, it's a little bit different than what we would normally see in relationship building. You know, there's people that we meet, and we genuinely, we don't even really know why, we just, we like them, right? We connect on some level, and, and not to be mystic or anything like that, that's not what I mean, but we just, we just get along, we hit it off. There's other people that it takes some, it's like, you know, you, maybe you meet, step on the wrong foot or whatever it is, but you, after a while, you get to know them and you, you really like them. Other people you meet, it takes a lot of prayer to, um, you know, get through some differences. But through that prayer, you can, you can come to terms. But this is kind of how we interact with people. And normally those, those relationships start with a commonality, right? Maybe it's a sports team that we share. So, you know, you're wearing your... your Cowboys? Am I going to stop? I'm not, a, I'm not a football fan, so it's not like it's just they popped into my brain. But you have your, your favorite sports team, I'll say that. Hat on or a jersey, and you meet somebody else, you know, like, hey, you're a fan, you're a fan, and then you, your relationship starts on that one basis, right? Um, or it's you're, you go to the same, you graduated from the same college or work at the same company, whatever it is, there's normally like a single thing that you can you can start that conversation with. Um, you know, those things aren't sinful at all, by any means, unless those things that you're doing are sinful, and stop it, and then, you know, you can keep going. But most of the time, it's, it's based on this. But for Paul and Philemon, I don't know what it was if Paul was just being Paul and started pouring into Philemon and Ephesus, how that conversation started. But when this letter is written, we see that this relationship they have, this bond that they share, is centered around Christ. And so all the experience, the redemptive power of Christ in our lives these men are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're joined together by this bond that's stronger than blood. These men have a past just like we do. These men were in it for themselves, doing what they could to either get by or gain wealth. Maybe not mean-spirited necessarily, but certainly selfish in our endeavors. We know the story of Saul who became Paul, God's righteous warrior, so he believed. He definitely became that in a different way than he had started out. 
the encounter he had on the road to Damascus, his salvation, and then many roads therein. After that, he traveled as he shared the gospel, the good news with the Gentiles. And you encounter many people along the way in those circumstances. And I, I really hate that, to use cliches, it's, it's not the destination, it's the journey, but I'm going to today. Because in our ministry, each of us has a ministry, and it really is about the journey. It really is about the people that we come in contact with on the road, along the way. We all have a destination, absolutely. But it's how we're used as we get to that destination. You know, I told you guys before about different stories about our first mission trip to Guatemala as a church. And most of the people flew. Some of us drove. And I got the honor and really the blessing to drive with our brother Joseph and Brandon Williamson. I love these guys. They are the two of the most evangelistic men that I know. And I picked up Joseph, I think it was around 5 o'clock in the morning, because we had to drive from Richmond to Miami. It was a long drive. 5 o'clock in the morning, picked him up, and then we had to pick up Brandon at like a service station or something. I don't remember. He's dropping his truck off to get fixed while we were gone. And so, and then we, I, I think I had to get gas, so I had to go to Wawa, I think, first. But then we had to get coffee, but it couldn't be Wawa coffee. It had to be Sheets coffee. There was a thing there. I don't remember why. But mind you, I picked up Joseph at 5 o'clock in the morning. At 10 a.m., we are still at Sheets, and Brandon is witnessing. And it was beautiful. It was, you know, this isn't a knock against Brandon at all. I, I love him. Um, but we, he was witnessing to, a, to an individual there. But we had to drive to Florida. And so I'm like, dude, we, we got to go. Like, it's 10, we should be in South Carolina. <laughs> and so we, we met a lot of people on that trip and, you know, got to pray with people, share the gospel with people you know, on the way there, while there, and on the way back. But that's our ministry, right? I mean, we were on the way to a mission trip, but that should be no different in our life, you know. Um, I got, you know held up in the details of, we sh of where we should be at that particular time instead of looking back and thinking, but somebody was hearing the word of God maybe for the first time. And so it, is, it really is a journey and the people that we meet. Um, and so we meet people. Paul met Philemon in much the same way, witnessed to him. And then there was a falling out, and here we are. These two men who were once strangers, we now forever read that they are bound by Christ. And there's a, there's a lot, like I said before, there's a lot we can say about grace for anyone teaching, you know, on a very basic level, this air that we're breathing right now, it's God's grace. But it, it's so much more than that. And there are a couple of things that I do want to mention about grace. It's actually penned in another letter by Paul, and it was a letter to Titus. In chapter 2, we see a few things that grace does. Let's first read Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15, and then we'll kind of look at the highlights. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. And so just to kind of call out some of these things individually, the first thing is God's, God, grace brings salvation. It was God's grace who looked upon the earth, saw the sin, and sent his only begotten son to die for our sins, to give his life in place of ours. That was God's grace. The second one is grace appeared to all men. You know, we're not talking about the frozen chosen. We're not talking about this. These You have to earn your way. So many of the other world's religions, every other world religion, is based on what we can do to earn our way. How much we do. How much we give. There's all these parameters. In some world religions, there's no guarantee. You can do all these things your entire life and still wonder. Being a follower of Christ, it's all based on what he did, what he has done, what he continues to do. And that was for all men. Grace appeared to all men. We can choose it or not, but it's for everybody. Grace teaches us. Grace teaches a lot. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's gentle. But grace teaches us. Grace tells us to look for the blessed hope. God is our blessed hope. Christ is our blessed hope. Our hope is in Him. Our confidence, our strength, our courage, the endurance we receive, all these things our joy, our peace, our hope. Grace tells us to look for these things in Him. Grace gave Himself, Jesus Christ, for us. Again, died a death that we deserved. And then God grace, or grace continues to redeem us. That redemption process is difficult at times. Painful, necessary, very necessary, but it's grace that redeems. Psalm 11.9 says, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. This is just a small, very, very small sampling of what grace is. The first thing that's mentioned, though, is grace brings salvation. This is confirmed by Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not for works, lest anyone should boast. Remember we read in the beginning, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. All these things, these six things, 
But we also see that grace is strength, it's power. His grace is sufficient. His grace sustains. And we think, you know, in the application of that, what about this marriage situation that I found myself in? It's sufficient. But what about this crisis at work that I'm faced with? Sufficient. But what about this super hard, personal, life-changing event that I find myself in? His grace is sufficient. It was his grace that saved us from our sin, saved us from certain death. Now only his grace is sufficient for us. It's power because his strength is made perfect in weakness. It's our weakness. His grace saves us and continues to sanctify us as we grow in him. And all of a sudden, those major things that would send us running aren't so hard to face. But now we can humbly walk with courage and humbly because we recognize that it's not our strength. It's his. It's, the, it's courage that we get from him, not our own courage. We're filled with peace. Maybe fearful. Maybe we shouldn't be. We know that the Lord doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but in our flesh we're fearful. But because of courage he gives us, we can still walk through these things. Because we trust in our Savior, not in ourselves and not in the people around us. We trust in our Savior. And he's changing us from who we were into something brand new. But now fully capable of walking through this life, filled with the Holy Spirit, and able to do and go through anything the Lord wills. God changes our perspective. He changes our way of thinking. We can trust more. We can love deeper. He changes everything about us. It's His grace that does these things. So moving on, a grace that restores. Who doesn't need restoration? I certainly do. Every day, every single day, I fall short. I don't mean to. I was telling the first group this morning, it's not like I wake up in the morning, you know, we don't wake up in the morning and say, today, I'm going to sin huge. And there's purpose behind it. No, we don't, we don't do that. And yet we still, we still sin. Hopefully nobody does that. But we still sin. We've talked before about being able to regain trust from an individual that we've wronged, right? Or that's wronged you. It's hard for us to trust again. Most of us have this image when you hear these things, an image of a person that pops up in our brain, right? It's like, I remember, I know, I still, I'm keeping tabs. And I don't mean to dredge up bad memories, but the closer you are to someone, the more you trust them, the more trust you have, the more love, it's oftentimes, it's the closest to us that we break this trust. And it hurts. It, there's no doubt about it, it hurts. It changes the dynamic of our relationship, sometimes forever. But not just these two people are affected, sometimes entire families 
Look how many families are destroyed because of broken trust. So the grace that restores, the second point, there's a beautiful story in the Bible that talks about this. And we've read it probably in this room together, in, individually even, no more than, you know, no, no less than a hundred times. We talk about it a lot. We read this story a lot, and we do so because each and every one of us, it is a personal story. And there's a person or people that are in our lives that we love that we can apply this story to. It's a story, the parable of the lost son in Luke 15, 11 through 32. We're not going to read it, just in interest of time. But the entire, you know, that part of it, of Luke 15, but really the entire chapter of Luke 15 shows us this type of love, this grace that is bestowed on those who wander off or become lost. You know, there's instances in my past prior to salvation that at the time seemed like convenience or, um, you know, we got lucky. <laughs> A lot of those. But looking back now that we're saved, it, it was God working. It was His grace, even in those situations. Fascinating. This parable, though, in Luke 15, and, you know, since it's the Thanksgiving holiday, Christmas holiday, I, I encourage everybody, read Luke 15 together as a family. Talk about it. Pray over it. Pray over the people that it applies to, because it applies to us certainly applied to us at one time. It applies to us now. And if, even if your family's separated and you're doing a Zoom call, take 30 minutes out of that call. Read it, discuss it, pray over it. I think you'll be blessed. But this parable is about the prodigal son, this son who asked for the father's inheritance early so he could leave and do his own thing, live his own life, walk away from the Father, not be under the oppression or the rules and all that. He wanted to be his own man, do his own thing. He quickly went through that inheritance and ended up with nothing. Humiliated, really humiliated, he went back to his Father with only the hopes of being restored but only to a servant because he felt he lost the right to be called a son. But the father's reaction to seeing him, remember the father ran to him, he fell on him, he kissed him. They had a wonderful reunion party. The father didn't care about the wrongdoing. He was only glad to see his son return home. And he was restored in his place in the family. The father showed grace to the son because he loved him. 
how much more grace our Heavenly Father gives to us. But what if you come across somebody that you have come to know and love, someone you poured into, someone that supported you, or you supported them in a time of need? Maybe somebody you considered a spiritual son. And because we live in a small world and happen to know about this other person that you're also very familiar with, but this other person you know betrayed your other friend. Ran from him. And likely never intending to go back to him. But because of the grace of God in this new creation, and someone who couldn't be trusted before is now very useful in the ministry, can be trusted. And as much as you would like to have this person stay and, and minister to you because you need it, you're, you know, you're in prison, you're in a bad spot, you need the help of your brothers but it's not right that he stay with you. It's right that he goes back. What would you do? What would be your response? It's only right that he goes home and makes amends. What are you to do? Well, if you decide to take the action that Paul did, the trust that he had in one Simus was enormous to write the letter that he did. But it's the trust we all have that matters. Our trust in one thing, in one individual, because you love them. You spend time with them. You know who they are. But the other part of that, and the bigger part, is the trust that comes from the fact that God has changed that person's life. You trust the work that God has done, that God is doing and continues to do. You see a drastic change in their life, but you trust the Holy Spirit moving in their life. We were saying earlier, it's hard a lot of times for our family when we become saved, it's hard for them to accept that because they know us. They know us. They knew us in our sin. They know how wretched we were. A lot of times, again, our, the things that we do is directly affecting the ones that we love most. And so it's hard for them to understand when we, we find God, we find Christ. Really, it's we surrender because God's always there with his hand down. It's hard for them to understand where we're at. I get that. But if you take this story and you think about this in our own lives, think about Philemon. He gets this letter from a man that he loves, Paul, and he's probably still been out of shape about this servant of his. 
And he's like, you want me to accept him back? What? Are you kidding? I mean, would, would we? Think about it in our own lives. I hope that we would be able to. Not because of them, but because of the redemptive work that God is doing. You know, there's certain things we have faith in, right? Certain things that we grow up with, that we know, um, that we even become conditioned in some way of, of doing. We, you know, we wake up in the morning, we praise God for His daily mercies. There's an issue that presents itself. We, we pray, receive guidance. Even our morning routines, you know, we get up, we have coffee, another cup of coffee, then we can start talking to people. But we get stuck in our routines, and, you know, sometimes God, a lot of times God shakes us up and tries to take us out of those things that we're used to, those things that we become comfortable with. And I remember, again, going back to this Guatemala mission trip, um, it takes a lot of faith in our brother, more faith in Christ to do these things. A couple of months ago, Pastor Tim was finishing up the chapter 12 of Hebrews, and he was talking about the power of God and mentioned the earthquake that we experienced when we were in Guatemala. Same mission trip. And um, again, you know, there's certain things that we we do, but when things like that take place, it shows us rather quickly where we're at. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't like to admit this, but, you know, because we all fall short, we were, when that earthquake hit, we were in a morning time of, of prayer and devotion. Each morning, a different person um, did a morning devo, and it was a beautiful time. And that particular morning, one of our sisters, who we were there with Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, from there was, was sharing, and she was praying. And as she started to pray, the earth started to shake. And growing up in California, if you've never been through an earthquake, you know, they're, they're interesting, to say the least. Um, but there's, there's something takes place right before the shaking really starts, where you're like, what's that? And then the Shaking starts. Well, my sister Melissa, uh, who's also from California, the, right before the shaking really started, and it was a good, good quake, um, we look up at each other and we're like, an earthquake? That's an earthquake. And so, you know, instinctually I get up and I run to the door jam because that's what you are brought up to do in California, a place where there's an earthquake because that's the strongest you know, structure in the house most of the time. And so I get to the door jam, and I look to make sure you know, everybody's coming, there's room, and they're all getting, starting to kneel down in a circle to pray. Like, ah, <laughs> God, you got me. So I run back over there and you know, kneel down and start praying with them. Um, you know, and it's funny, too, because like growing up in California... You know, when you're in school, you have these earthquake drills. And, you know, the earthquake drill, and everybody has to get down and cover your head, grab onto the desk. You know, it's an earthquake. I don't know what your desk is going to do. And, 
if you're my age, you, you grew up, you know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s with these nuke tests. And it was the same kind of a thing. You know, you get on the table, you grab, it's a nuke. What is your, what is your desk going to do? But it's, it's something, I suppose. And so, you know, because of my reaction to the earthquake on this mission trip, um, you know, as I'm running back to my position to pray with the team, um, you know, I blame the Los Angeles School District for the brainwashing they put me through. But, you know, the, the, it, those types of scenarios, those types of things in your life make you realize where you put your faith, where you put your trust. And in a moment of weakness, I realized that my faith wasn't where it should have been. And, you know, I got to witness my brothers and sisters where I should have been. My first instinct should have been drop to my knees and pray, not run to the door jam. But it is in time of crisis that you realize where your faith is, how much faith you have when the pain starts, when the temptation begins, when the fear rushes in. It's that faith that we have in Christ that really shows us these things. But it's also God's grace that he allows for us to prayerfully, as if I'm ever faced with another earthquake again, that I don't run for the door jam. I run to him. Let's not test it, Lord. Let's just... But Philemon, he had faith. He had to have faith to know that God was had transformed the life of this man, one Simus, who wronged him somehow, so bad that he fled. We don't know what took place exactly other than the stealing and fleeing. But whatever it was was so bad that he had to flee. And now is being asked by Paul to accept him back. But not just to restore him to his former position, as a servant, but now to restore him as a brother in Christ, a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier, an equal. Forgive him of any wrongdoing, of any debt, and Paul told him to place it on his account. And there's really an entire teaching right there in that one simple act of grace. But how can we say no? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't he forgive us of our sin, our wrongdoing? Didn't he pay our debt? And don't we now want to share that salvation that he gives a hope and a promise of eternity with the Father? A lot of parallels in what Paul's letter to Philemon in our personal walk with Jesus Christ. And frankly, in our own walk, our life, you know, we don't have to go through all these different teachings within it, but read Philemon. Again, it's a book that we tend to gloss over because it's short and we're like, I have bigger things to get onto. But we, there's so many, so much in that one letter. 
I want you to pay close attention to also what Paul says in verse 15 and 16. He says, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Remember, what we read about in Moses, Moses' life in Exodus 2, in verses 11 through 15 about him killing a man. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he, had, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. He looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out on the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one of the who did wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you prince and a judge over us? Interesting choice of words. Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. We know the story. He saw this injustice taking place. His brethren... He took action. His fear made him flee, but he ended up in Midian, sitting by a well. And by that well, he took action again, and he helped the shepherds water their flock. A lot of significance there. We read in chapter 3 that he's now tending to the flock that belongs to his father-in-law Jethro. He has now become a shepherd himself. A skill that we know he will use for many years and many years later to lead God's people out of the bondage and into the promised land. But think about it. God was with him every step of the way. God knew he would be using the killing to lead Moses away. God led Moses to Midian. He led him to the shepherd's well to water the flock. Jethro and everything else. God was leading and guiding him. All these events were used for the glory of God. But if you were a friend of Moses, think about that for a second. If you were a friend of Moses, a loved one, and you realized that the rumors were true. He really did kill somebody. He really did flee. Our thoughts would be, man, he ruined his life. What is he thinking? Why would he do that? But we don't know the plans that God has for us. We don't know his reasons. And we may go from one thing to another in the right manner, for the right reasons, believing that everything we do will be better 
for us in the long run. Sometimes we leave things undone, unsettled, relationships in shambles, trust broken, whatever life throws at us. But he will use those things for his glory and to, and to do a work in us. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. Maybe this was the only way God could get him alone to open his eyes to where he was, to who he had become. And think back to our own testimonies. How many of us, if this is a familiar story, if we're one Simus, that's great. We lived a life, a sinful life, and God saved us. But it's a different perspective when we are Paul, who's also a man walking in faith, and having faith in God, so much faith in God, so much trust, to ask what Paul's asking. Seeking the grace of God on the life of another, and then reaching out, asking for grace to be given. What if we're Philemon, the one receiving this letter? And we're asked, being asked to receive somebody back into our life that we once trusted, but now don't. It takes an incredible amount of trust to do this. And even if we had our doubts about one Simus, even if we have our doubts about the people in our life, if we know that God is doing a work, can we not trust the work that God is doing? That's what Paul's asking. Paul's saying, the things that I'm asking you is built on this faith that we have in the work of Christ. And so I ask, set aside those things that Cloud our judgment, those things that um, we once put stock in, like running to the stupid doorframe. We need to trust his word. We need to trust who he is. Trust the discernment from the Holy Spirit. We can trust the change that takes place in an individual when that change comes from our Heavenly Father. And so in closing, think about this quote from Spurgeon. Nothing but the infinite can ever satisfy me. I am such a great sinner that I must have infinite merit to wash my sin away. But we have had our sin removed and found that there was merit to spare. We have had our hunger relieved at the feast of the sacred love. What Spurgeon is talking about there is grace. We can say these things, we can read this quote because of the grace of God. And so I ask, as the worship team comes up, to close us out in one last praise song. If there's anybody here who, or online, if you're watching from home, if you're here and you've never 
accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've gone to church for a really long time. You do the church thing. Maybe you pray. But you can think back in your life and you think, I've never stopped and asked Christ to be my Savior. I never asked to have my sins forgiven. I've never humbled myself to Him at all. Even my prayers sometimes are self-righteous. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask that you raise your hand. If you've walked away, if you once walked with the Lord and have walked away and are in a position that you know is not where God wants you, I'll ask you to raise your hand as well and just ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit once again. Not in a, you know, I believe once saved, you're saved. But we can get in seasons in our life where we just keep messing up. And maybe the faith, the trust that we once had in God is gone. And I pray if you're in that place that you would raise your hand. No one's going to make fun of you. No one's going to judge you. If you're giving your life to Christ through salvation, angels will rejoice and will rejoice right along with them. And if you're taking a step of faith and reconnecting with the Lord, that's where God wants you. I'm going to pray a prayer of salvation. If anybody prays that here or at home, let us know, please. We'd love to come alongside you and give you a Bible and help start you on that journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again that you've given us this day, this time in your word. Lord, I just pray that your word will continue to go forth and penetrate hearts, change lives. And God, if anybody here or at home is coming to you now, broken, seeking salvation, or seeking a new relationship with you, Lord, this is a prayer of intercession. We pray for them now. We pray for the prodigals to come home. We, for, we pray for us, Lord, to be surrendered to you. Not in how we want to manage church and manage you, Lord, but in how you use us for your glory. If you want to pray a prayer of salvation, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my self-righteousness. For my unrighteousness. And forgive me for taking what you made and making it just disgusting and not of you. I pray now, Lord, that you would forgive me of my sins. Fill me 
with your Holy Spirit. Teach me, Lord. I pray, Lord, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to lead and guide my life. God, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again and now are at the seat at the right hand of the Father. Lord, change my life. I want to become one with you, serve you. Help me, Lord, with my disobedience. Help me, Lord, in my unbelief. I give my life to you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.